Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, it's Jenny. In light of the case currently making its way through the Supreme Court, threatening Roe v. Wade, we're bringing back the second season of Ordinary Equality. The conversation around reproductive rights has been one of the most contentious political debates in America. From Wonder Media Network, Ordinary Equality unpacks the history of this debate, from the views of colonial America to underground abortion networks to the seminal Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, and all the way to the present day. Tune in right here on this feed for a new episode every Tuesday and Thursday. If the Equal Rights Amendment were ever ratified, it would encourage the legislatures and the state to adopt a wildly permissive role which would have the effect of driving the homemaker out of the home. These laws are basic to the institution of the family. We reject the anti-family goals of the Equal Rights Amendment and the International Women's Year. The American people and the American women do not want ERA. They do not want abortion. They do not want lesbian privileges. And they do not want universal child care in the hands of the government. Last episode, we talked about Roe versus Wade. When the decision came down, it wasn't that controversial. Reproductive rights were not always seen as a partisan issue. And yet, today, abortion access is a hot-button issue for political candidates. You can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb in the ninth month, on the final day. And that's not acceptable. This is still a fundamental issue of justice for women in America. It is her body, it is her right, it is her decision. We shouldn't be sending $500 million of taxpayer money to funding an ongoing criminal enterprise. We need to call this what it is, a nationwide assault on women's constitutional rights. How did we get from bipartisan support to this major partisan divide? I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney and feminist activist. And I'm Jamia Wilson, writer, editor, and feminist activist. This is Ordinary Equality. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We, the people of the United States of America, 
documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. Today we're talking about the Long Southern Strategy, an organized campaign that pulled abortion access into a catalog of issues to create a new morality-focused foundation of the Republican Party. The movement that united the majority of white voters in the South consists of three underlying components, Christian nationalism, racism, and sexism. Let's examine the growth of the paradigms that created the powerful and united anti-choice movement. To get started, let's review what we talked about in episode four, the rise of the religious right. Catholics had long opposed abortion. In the 1970s, mostly white and often pro-segregationist evangelicals began to follow suit. If you're curious how that happened, check episode four. In short, evangelicals sought an issue to unite voters and they saw the persuasiveness of Catholics' moral arguments against abortion access. Here's Elise Hogue, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. For the architects of the radical right, largely from an evangelical background, um, there was no institutional opposition to abortion, either pre-Roe or when Roe came down, or even in the years following Roe, right? What there was, was a very, very coordinated attempt to leverage political power in the late 60s and early 70s to fight school desegregation. And um, there was... A lot of legal battles. There were a lot of cultural battles. Um, And in fact, when they exhausted all of their legal battles, they said, "Okay, well, we need something else to use as a tool. And the tool was to retain control in the grip of a very, very small number of white Christian men in service of what one of the founders called dominionism. Dominionism, the belief that God gave white men dominion over all systems of power. And, you know, part of what we come up with in the book is to really try and recognize the um, deeply embedded connection between misogyny, white supremacy, and power. Right. And um, that in some ways, the step off of overtly advocating for segregation, although, as we know, many of them have continued to do so in in many structural ways, um, but making that the center of their organizing theory into using abortion as a tip of the spear to suppress gender equality, um, that those things were really copacetic in their worldview, which was all about retaining power for themselves. As we talked about in episode four, religious leaders tended to be men. So there's something big missing from the story we've presented thus far, the women leaders of the anti-choice movement. Here's Angie Maxwell, director of the Diane Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society. She's also chair of the Center of Southern Studies and an associate professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. I'm from Louisiana. My entire family on both sides is from Louisiana, as far back as we trace. And so the South in general has always been of interest to me, but I have a PhD in American studies. And so I wrote my dissertation on the Southern inferiority complex, how public criticism of the South at these kind of heightened moments really sparked this defensiveness and this kind of withdrawal from 
you know, society in some cases or a double down in um, claiming superiority, you know, just the different kind of compensations for that sense of inferiority. And I was I was actually Skyping into a class that Marjorie Spruill was teaching when she was teaching at South Carolina. And she asked me a question at the end. And she's in this first book. She said, where are the women in your book? And I got real quiet and I thought about it. And I said, you know, well, for these incidences I was looking at, you know, they weren't, there weren't women who were kind of major players, but, you know, I was unsatisfied with the answer. Marjorie's simple question launched a new phase of Angie's work. As Angie dove into the study of Southern white women, she realized there was a hole in the available scholarship. So it launched a lifelong friendship with Marjorie and my realization that there was a big gap in what we knew about why the South turned red. Kind of, we have the racial argument in the 60s and 70s, and then we all of a sudden had George W. Bush and the, you know, gay marriage amendments on the ballots in the 2000s. And there was a kind of a bridge in the middle missing. And that's when I started digging into, you know, anti-ERA, activism in the South and and what it did. Effectively and lastingly turning the South red required a union of multiple evils, racism, sexism, and Christian nationalism. As many Republicans are very fond of appropriating, the GOP is the party of Lincoln. The South had been reliably blue basically since the Civil War. So what changed? Let's rewind to 1948. President Harry Truman, a Democrat, was running for re-election. Despite the South's previous loyalty to his party, Truman had broken ranks with many Southern Dems by using an executive order to integrate the military. Furious, white segregationists ran a third-party candidate, Strom Thurmond, from my birth state of South Carolina, to try to assert their electoral power. The strategy was unsuccessful, but it highlighted the growing cracks within the Democratic Party. Then, in 1964, the Democratic Party came to a breaking point. After a big battle within the Republican Party, Barry Goldwater gets the nomination, um, and there's an effort behind the scenes with strategists to create an alliance between Midwest Republicans and Western Republicans and Southern whites who are frustrated um, with the National Party and upset about specifically the Civil Rights Bill of 64, which is just a few months before the election. And so Goldwater plays hard um, about his vote. He was one of only six Republican senators that voted against the bill. And he ends up flipping five deep South states red. It's like 87% of the vote in Mississippi. It's crazy for a Republican. Um, But he loses the rest of the country. He just wins Arizona and those states. So Republicans go back to the drawing board and they try to kind of figure out how they can reach out and break this Southern Democratic bloc, but not lose the rest of the country. And Nixon skates that middle in 68 and then 72, and boom, the South turns red, and that's the Southern strategy. White racial angst drove Southern white Democrats into the arms of Republicans, but it's not that simple. The South wasn't decisively red for long. In 1976, it flipped back to blue. So in 1976, the entire South goes back to blue, except for Virginia, for Jimmy Carter. 
And so how we stop there and say, you know, that's how it flipped kind of made no sense to me. And so I started digging into 76 to 80, really looking at it. And um, there was some exit polling that was released a week after the election in 1980 that actually disaggregated the vote choice by support for ERA and then actually did it by gender and by region, which never happens. And I don't have the raw data, but just seeing that, you could tell, whoa, Southern white women who did not support the ERA voted like 80 to 20 for Ronald Reagan. And so then I wanted to see, when did those attitudes change? And it turns out the American National Election Survey data, which is the only kind of continuous polling we have from 48 until now, asked the ERA question for three years in 76, 78, and 80. Um, Their Southern samples are not huge, um, but in 1976, white women in the South overwhelmingly supported the ERA. By 1978, they are underwater with disapproval reaching over 50%, right over 50%. In every other group, Southern white men, non-Southern whites, both men and women outside of the South, it does decline some, but it doesn't go anywhere near, you know, kind of those levels. Um, Southern white men, it drops by 80, but it's not lower than Southern white women. And so something happened that really turned those women um, from approval to disapproval. After the 1964 Civil Rights Act, white men flooded to the Republican Party. White women proved to be less driven by that particular issue. So if Republicans wanted to keep the South, they were going to have to add something else to their racist edict. Enter Phyllis Schlafly. If you don't know who we're talking about, we did a whole episode on Phyllis Schlafly season one of Ordinary Equality, and I highly recommend checking that out before listening further. Schlafly successfully tied abortion to the Equal Rights Amendment. She used both to tell a mutually reinforcing story of moral decay. Merges abortion attitudes and kind of the pro-life wing with the anti-ERA. Right. I mean, we know now that the anti-ERA movement put out a lot of false information. I mean, their famous pink paper, you know, told women that, you know, they were going to be forced to work. It told women that they were going to have to put their babies in government daycare. Those issues, particularly in the South, you know, this is where I do have some empathy because There was no infrastructure for a lot of these middle-class white women who got involved in these movements to work. There was not support for, you know, daycare. There was not a network of women who were doing this, right? So it, the idea that all of a sudden you were going to have to go to work seemed impossible in their world, right? And it scared them. Um, It also was a status to not work. That's still an issue in the South. It was aspirational to working class white women, you know, to aspire to be on that kind of Southern white pedestal that for women that's been there since antebellum times. And so this seemed like it was challenging the structure and kind of the identity structure of Southern white femininity, which was put on a pedestal, protected, taking care of the home, 
somehow above the fray of like public life. This construct of idealized white femininity in the South has long served as rationale for racist and misogynistic policies. This is very different from like pioneer Western women and the way that's constructed. And it was a faux justification for, you know, white supremacy in that this gave, um, you know, men, you know, gave lynchings, gave brutality against black men, you know, made it, you know, wrapped it in the nice package of chivalry, right? And, and it was often used in terms, specifically, we know in terms of lynching that, you know, were justified by this person raped a white woman or this African-American man flirted with a white woman, got fresh with the white woman. I mean, that was the language with Emmett Till. That was used well into the, you know, 20th century, that these women needed to be protected. And that's that rationalization to deal with the, you know, physical violence and brutality that was needed to suppress, you know, Black economic, up, you know, mobility, political mobility, all of it. Um, and so how does that matter as we get into like, you know, the 20th century? Well, after Reconstruction, it was the Southern white women in their grief and loss who tried to, um, you know, prop up kind of the white men who'd lost this war to make the war make sense and have some meaning so that the loss of their sons and spouses were not in vain, that they set about telling a different story about the war. So Southern white women are who get involved in the Daughters of the Confederacy, in the monument building. Um, it was seen, historic preservation was seen as an area that was kind of socially acceptable for women to be in. These women are the foremothers of the anti-ERA advocates, they were extremely active in fighting for their cause so long as their activities remained outside the sphere of business. And it served the double purpose of giving them something to do, right? We didn't have the outbreak of like women's clubs and like Jane Addams whole, whole you know, whole house reform movements in the South. Um, it gave, it occupied women um, who had been isolated and it also allowed them to kind of redeem you know, the men in their lives, right? And the purpose of what they kind of fought for. The other area of the historic preservation they got into and memorialization was textbooks, right? Southern white women wrote those textbooks, a lot of them, and served on those committees and campaigns that, you know, retold the story of the war between the states and kind of continued that false narrative. So they were very active in preserving the pedestal upon which they were originally placed. It also continues well into the 21st century with the institutions that get built, like sororities and finishing schools, beauty pageants, you know, all of those kind of junior leagues, though they do some good work, but all of the social clubs, you know, of women that women were involved with, which may have a completely philanthropic purpose, but also really carved out and polished this kind of Southern white femininity. Phyllis Schlafly skillfully argued that feminists were invalidating the choices of women who wanted to fulfill what they believed to be their rightful role in the home. 
She also convinced women who were already working in the South that feminists disregarded them, that the feminist movement was made up of people who didn't actually have to get their hands dirty. What she said to lower class women, working class women in the South is, and I see this perpetuated now, is she, it was kind of a double standard. She said, oh, these feminists, right? They think no women down here work. But look at some of you who've been working so hard. Shouldn't you have to not work so hard? Like portraying it as the feminists were all elite wasps, right? Um, And that myth perpetuates that that is what the movement was because we know very much it was not. But that was said to Southern white women that were working in factories and working on assembly lines and all of that kind of stuff. They felt then criticized by the feminists too, right? She played them both off of each other, both groups. Phyllis Schlafly was masterful at turning a variety of issues into Black and white questions of moral fiber. She and the other architects of the Southern strategy used that technique to bring Southern women into the fold. To try to start figuring out how to do exactly what Schlafly taught them to do, which was create a distinct choice. How do you differentiate between two parties on this critical issue with women voters? And they particularly knew they had to win Southern white women who many of them went on the racial issue, but not enough. Right. So men flooded to the Republican Party on the, you know, Civil Rights Act or opposition to it. But women, they trickled. Right. So what do you do? Right. And so Schlafly's got to get the Republican Party to do not just the pro-life stance, but also the anti-ERA stance. She's got to marry them. She's got to, got to create a clear division because that is the way that you rebrand the party in a clear enough way, you know, to be able for the main, for it to, for the masses to be able to understand it. Right. And so after Roe v. Wade, they think that if they can marry anti-ERA and a really strict take on abortion, a hardcore pro-life, which, as we know from polling, evangelicals were way more moderate on it prior to that. Um, That's just documented. Then you might be able to draw a clear line between what was messy in 1976 between Republicans and Democrats, right? And so, you know, she successfully gets the Republican Party to push pro-life and drop the ERA from their platform in 1980 for the first time in 40 years. It's like it doubled the impact, it doubled the salience to kind of push them to make it their driving issue to kind of vote. It had to be packaged as something bigger, as like a referendum on like masculinity and femininity in general. It, It really did because alone, it wasn't salient enough of an issue. And so they're going to bundle it with like prayer in school and just like government is absolutely just changing morality, right? They tied together traditional gender norms, dogmatic religion, and racism. By uniting those three evils, the creators of the Southern strategy appealed to a much larger audience than if they had stuck to just one. 
They turned abortion, the ERA, prayer in school, and more into issues that dictated an individual's goodness or moral acuity. You know, one of the arguments I make in the Long Southern strategy is the people who express like racial resentment or modern sexism or even Christian nationalism, like there are some people that are all, all three, but most people aren't. It's a very small portion that are all three. They're two of three or they're one of three. Now, we don't like, we, we criticize them like they're all three. But what they say about themselves when they answer these kind of questions is that they will absolutely cop to feeling racial resentment, but they will not say it about sexism or they're not a Christian nationalist or vice versa, whatever. It's the combo of all three. It's a big enough tent. You need all three for the South to turn red all the way down to like the local level. Like saying I'm anti-abortion isn't just saying I'm anti-abortion. It's saying I'm not that. Correct. I am not someone who would ever need that. I am someone who's a good person who loves children, who will sacrifice herself, white, just add all those layers kind of on. I am a good girl. A good girl. So I'm not from the South, but I am from a culture where this idea is very prevalent and we love our pedestals. Utah, maybe it's the the South of the West. And this kind of cultural conditioning can be very totalizing. It can be very, very difficult to escape something so powerful, even if it's just in your mind. And if it's what you've been hearing, you know, from the time that you were born um, throughout your life, even if you start to have questions or you start to think, oh, this pedestal is actually a prison, it can feel like the unknown or what you've been told happens to good girls turn bad who don't follow the rules is worse than trying agency or freedom or liberation from the confines of a system you know doesn't work for you. So I think it's really hard for folks to release themselves from conditioning. Even myself as someone who considers themselves very self-actualized, that I had my own experiences of shame about things that I didn't necessarily feel I should be remorseful about, but because I had just been told that bad things would happen to me for not having remorse or bad things would happen to me for not sharing the same viewpoints as other people about what is moral and good. Bad things would happen to me for daring to think about nuance or complexity or the in-betweens, right? So I think this is such an important conversation for us to have because I think a lot of people are living in those spaces of, of fear and that is exactly what they're stirring up and sparking the kindles of. When you give something up, you also have to give up the privileges that come along with it. And, you know, this pedestalized femininity comes with a lot of privilege, particularly for white women. And there are things that we get from being adjacent to men in power that maybe we don't want to give up because at least we're adjacent to power. <laughs> even if, if we're not in power, even if we don't have the power, at least we know with and sleep in the same bed of the people that do. If you are a person who's used to privilege, if you are a person who's used to being sheltered, if you are a person who has been protected and continues to benefit from patriarchy, 
losing all of that can be very frightening and threatening. That proximity to power is so addictive and it's such a drug. I was thinking about this recently because I decided, and I don't know why I do this from time to time, to dive into the message boards on Stormfront, which is the white supremacist website. I've been doing this ever since it began. Ever since the eighth grade, I started studying hate groups. Just a casual hobby. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Travis kept being like, you know, why do you like to look at Stormfront at 11.30 p.m.? (laughs) But um, the other day I, you know, had been reading about uh, seditionists and white women who are deeply devoted to promoting the white men who have been fomenting so much hate um, that directly impacts them as well and just running to kind of get to the bottom of it. And what I saw is that they have message boards that are led by white women who are talking about the dreams and hopes they have of having the perfect access and proximity that you get as a good white woman who follows these rules and how they'll be rewarded and how do we recruit other white women and bring them back into the fold to therefore understand that it's of benefit to them to be like us. And so I I really became interested specifically in that because I think in the bubble that we're in, I don't like to think that they have a charming proposition that would want anyone to be a part of it because I think what they do is so deplorable and so inhumane. And yet there are women from all over the world, white women from all over their diaspora, who are saying that they would that they would benefit and crave the kind of protection they feel that they require and the protection of privilege that they feel like they deserve from protecting this toxic masculinity from our view. Every once in a while, I do dive into those comment boards so that I can stay vigilant in my work to make sure that we really and truly understand the culture war nature of what we're in. It's not just about policies, which are very important. It's about the minds and hearts that they are working to poison and for us to do the opposite work. So we've talked about how strategically combining racist, sexist, and religious arguments flipped the majority of white people in the South to the Republican Party. That has had serious lasting implications on our elections and on our ability to access health care and specifically abortions. The Republican majority in the South has been held together in part by racism. The consistent attacks against abortion and other kinds of health care hit Black folks and other people of color hardest. To get a sense of the long Southern strategy's legacy on the ground today, we spoke with Felicia Brown-Williams. My name is Felicia Brown-Williams. Pronouns are she and her. And my personal mission is to harness Southern strength and love to better the lives of women and girls. Felicia started at Planned Parenthood as a grassroots organizer. She's now the Mississippi State Director. It was great to catch up with a reproductive justice leader and anti-racist collaborator who I've known since my time at Planned Parenthood almost 18 years ago. I asked her what it was like to work on this issue in the Deep South. So on March the 13th, 2006, I started my um, job with Planned Parenthood. And within two weeks, I was testifying before a committee about the need for um, access to safe and legal abortion. There was a bill on the table that was, it was a full abortion ban. 
There was international press crawling all over the Capitol. I just remember thinking, what the hell have I gotten myself into? We average about uh, 10 or 11 abortion restrictions every single year. We have one abortion provider in Mississippi. The one abortion provider we have in Mississippi is here in Jackson, which is where I'm based. Uh, Planned Parenthood is not an abortion provider in Mississippi. Um, we simply can't. The laws are too stringent. And also, we have a supermajority in both the Senate, the Senate and the House that are anti-abortion supermajorities. All of our statewide elected officials are anti-abortion Republicans. And the, the outlook on the state level is dire. Um, so we are definitely one of those states who's really reliant on the federal government. And as so many abortion restrictions are getting closer to the Supreme Court, you know, there's a whole pipeline. Mississippi has a 15-week abortion ban. That's one of those cases. And it's literally pending. It's been pending before the Supreme Court for months. So that is, it's more top of mind in terms of the real possibility of banning abortion and allowing a safe and legal abortion to be banned in states. The anti-abortion activists never stop. And in Mississippi, anti-abortion activists include basically every elected official. Because of the way the system works, both the electoral system and the legislative system, it doesn't reflect what people in the community feel and believe. Mississippi um, has the highest Black voting age population in the country. The legislature does not reflect that. Um, you know, we are 51% women. The legislature does not reflect that. So just simply the makeup of the legislature does not reflect the community and doesn't reflect the community's values. So what that looks like in Mississippi is a lot of white lawyers and realtors. I mean, it's, it's white collar folks, mostly white men, who are in those seats. The governor, a previous governor, when our current terrible U.S. senator was up for election, they had a press conference, and I don't even remember exactly what he was asked, but he started screaming about black genocide. See, in my heart, I am confused about where the outrage is at about 20 million African-American children that have been aborted. No one wants to say anything about that. No one wants to talk about that. This is a white man. This is a white man who as governor did very little to better the lives of people who are black in this state, but wanted to scream about black genocide. The heartbreaking and incredibly unjust reality is that the legislators have enacted policies that predominantly affect the Black community, and particularly those who can't afford to travel elsewhere to seek abortions. Jackson is uh, where the Jackson Women's Health Organization is located. It's the one um, abortion clinic in the state, right? Jackson is 80% Black. That means the majority of people who are seeking abortion in Jackson are Black. In addition to that, the location of the clinic, it's right smack dab in the middle of town in a very busy area. And so folks with access to wealth and resources generally go somewhere else, which means going out of state, or they've got access to someone they know who is their OBGYN and they're willing to ask. The way the clinic is physically set up the, the street between the clinic and the hotel is not super well-traveled. It's mostly just people who are coming to the clinic or who live down that street. So the protesters literally just essentially take the street over. 
There's violence in our hands across this land. Yeah, and we that's kill, something, y'all. Murder. Three thousand. They stand on the literal sidewalk of the clinic and they will set up ladders so that they can stand on the ladders and yell at people with bullhorns over the top of the fence. They have purchased pink um, vests to make it look like they're with the clinic. And they will rush people's cars before they can get to where the escorts are to give them pamphlets and try to direct them to a crisis pregnancy center across the street. So you've got this, this situation where you've got these people yelling at folks, you know, <laughs> over the fence line, other people rushing their cars and uh, are rushing cars of people they think might be patients. If you haven't seen it before, I mean, it's, it's atrocious. Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. The physical and emotional turmoil required to get an abortion in Mississippi is astonishing. Uh, Mississippi has a 24-hour waiting period, which means that you have to come to the health center twice to receive your abortion. Uh, the first time you come, you have to receive specific state-mandated speech that includes medically inaccurate information about the link between abortion and breast cancer. This information must be provided to you by the physician who is providing the abortion. For minors, you must have two-parent in-person written consent to receive an abortion. Uh, If your parent's name does not match yours, you have to have birth certificates, you have to have court documents, You have to have literal documentation in order to get an abortion. One of the big ones in Mississippi and the reason why so many abortion clinics closed was that we have ambulatory surgical facilities requirements for the actual facilities in which abortions are provided. They require that you have a surgical suite set up for something that is not really surgery and in a lot of cases is literally being handed some pills. But you have to have a surgical suite to do that. It gets down to like widths of doors, uh, anesthesia, um, oxygen, all of these things that are completely unnecessary. It is easy living it every day to forget just how nuts all of this is. Widespread legislative support in the state of these kinds of restrictions speaks to the effectiveness of the Long Southern strategy. The systemic attacks on reproductive rights and abortion access have happened over a long period of time. Reversing that momentum is going to take time, too. Felicia says we need to settle in for a marathon of activism. I think it's a multi-pronged strategy, really. I mean, which is we have to change the conversation. And we've got to make sure that we are finding ways to center the people who are the most impacted and elevate their voices in the work. And we've got to continue to build real power on behalf of community and leverage that power. There is no substitute for grassroots organizing. None. None. So we've got to keep plugging away. And we know that Roe is the floor, not the ceiling. But it took us you know, from Roe to now, I mean, that's 40-something years, right? 
and thinking about the way that abortion has been politicized, used as a wedge issue, and specifically and explicitly used as a turnout tool for white evangelical voters, we've got to remember it took them a minute to get here. It's going to take us a minute to get back. We've got to dig in our heels and we've got to fight back and remember it's a long game. Abortion access is an issue that can't be separated from other foundational problems with this country. Next time, we're talking about a movement that demands we acknowledge and address the intersectionality of the issue at hand. We're talking about reproductive justice. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production produced by Edie Allard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Janice Formicella and Taylor Williamson. Looking for a new podcast? We recommend you check out Three Righteous Mamas, where three all-American moms who are Latina, Muslim, and queer talk about the issues of the day with some of the biggest changemakers and thought leaders in our world. These three mamas are on a mission to transform our country and celebrate the power and hope of pissed off mamas who are building a better world for all of our children. There's no podcast quite like it. So check it out on whatever platform you get your podcasts on.